Hey, what's up, friends? Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number eight, Mark McCluskey. Now, what I love about Mark is he's a punker at heart. He's worked with Bad Religion, Ludo, Motion City Soundtrack, Weezer, and then eventually started to get into composing. He got things in Super Bowl ads, car commercials. To me, that's just crazy. He is a wealth of knowledge. So what we're going to do is we're going to step inside the brain of Mark McCluskey right now in episode number eight. Let's dive in. So, Mark, I, if I look at your all music, your bio, your credits, so like you've got a couple of platinum gold records, uh, multiple top five Billboard albums. You've worked with Weezer. You got Bad Religion, Motion City Soundtrack, Social Distortion. You've gone into composing. If I were to rewind and uh -huh. let's go to like young Mark who uh -huh. is suddenly intrigued with the idea <laughs> of music and recording. What was that journey or kind of that realization of music, something you listen to, to eventually like, this is my career. This is what I want to do. Was there like a moment where you're like, I want to get into this shit. I mean, I know this sounds so stupid. I don't think I had a choice in doing anything else. And it was not even a thought of of uh, an inkling of like, oh, I wonder if I could do this. It was just kind of like, as far as I can remember, any allowance I had that my mom or dad would give me, I would buy records, like literally vinyl, right? Because it was the 80s for me. So it was like, I would just spend my weekly or monthly allowance on music. Um, and all my friends would buy like toys and stuff. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. for me, I never thought about anything else. And I never even thought to do this for a job. I just liked it. And that's it. Like, I, you know what I mean? It was never like, oh, I want to do music for a job. Like job never came into to my head. It was just like, I like making music or I like being involved in music and I'm just going to do that. So that's kind of like what I did. But, um, so when I was like, uh, a little kid, I remember once we got to band, Age. I think it was like six or yeah, five or yeah, six or seven. I had to be. So like when you got to pick band at school, like Huey Lewis and the News was my favorite band at that time. So I yeah. wanted to play saxophone. Um, and uh, it was the 80s. So everybody wanted to play saxophone. So uh, wherever I was in the line, all the saxophone players had been taken. So I got put on clarinet. So I started uh, on clarinet. And um, I always loved ever again ever since I was a little kid. The first time I ever heard Gershwin, um, Rhapsody in Blue, it, it made me feel some type of way, as people say. And um, you know, it has a really wonderful um, clarinet, beautiful line in it. And um, I don't know, that spoke to me a lot. Uh, and then uh, so I did that, and then I moved over to saxophone eventually. Then I started playing percussion, um, and then. Uh, little other little instruments here and there i got into high school jazz band and stuff where i was playing drums at that point and i was a skate skate rat punk dude and this is before <laughs> skateboarding was cool uh and and punk was cool and um i i would get i would buy these you know skateboarding videos with like Pal Peralta videos and, and, and whatever, you know, whatever else is going New Deal, I remember, was a company that I really liked a lot. And, like, all the skate videos would have really, really cool, vibey hip-hop and or punk rock. 
So like I discovered like the descendants through these skateboarding videos in Metallica and other heavier genres of music. And I really liked the energy and the, the grit that was in that uh, style of music. I, I really enjoy intensity and that doesn't have to always necessarily mean loud, right? You can have the most intensely quiet thing you've ever heard. So I just really liked the, 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 the grit and um, intensity in that, in that style of music. So I started writing my own songs when I was probably about 11 or 12. And then uh, I started to think, well, I'm writing these songs. I'd love to hear what they sound like. So I had this crappy old, um, I think it was a PV PA that had like, I don't remember, four or eight inputs. And mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, really just crap. And uh, I took my mom's Sony boombox that had RCA inputs in the back. And I took the PA out of PA RCA outs, fed it into the inputs of the boombox. And then whatever mics we had laying around or to borrow from friends, I would like put mics on, you know, my drum kit and um, our guitarist guitar and the bass. Or if we didn't have enough mics, I would put one mic in the room and move it around until I got a good capture of everything. So then what I would do is have the PA feeding the, the boom box, hit record on the boom box. I would record one of our songs. I would listen back and go, oh man, uh, like the guitars don't sound right, I need to move the mic. And then we would record it again and then record it again. And I would just keep moving things until I got it to sound right through this really crappy setup. That is some MacGyver shit right there. Yeah. That is so cool that it's just like even like th there's two things that I think are really good. When you were talking about intense doesn't have to mean loud, which is just a really cool reference to just like you thinking about dynamics already. You just being aware of like the field doesn't mean, you know, loud isn't necessarily yeah. intense. You could still have intense, exactly. but like tension and quiet. But even just the idea of you recording your, your songs and thinking to yourself, I need to move the mic. Like it's not, it's not the tone that I want. It's almost like you had something in your head that you, oh, knew yeah. that you could achieve. And you were like, until I move, that's it right there. I exactly. got to remember that position. That is yeah. so cool. When people like ask me about like, how do you know when it's done or how do you start or how do you do anything? Right. Well, I always tell them the same thing. I did a thing for Berkeley last week uh, for one of their scoring online classes. And uh, the, the teacher and I became friends and he invited me in to talk about like mixing. And um, they asked the same thing. And, and it was an original composition that I wrote for this video game trailer la like a few weeks ago that I was mm -hmm. showing them. And they were like, well, how, how do you... So when you write, again, if like people don't know, they're not aware, when you write for like an orchestra or anything, you start with a piano sketch, right? So it's like everything just starts on a piano. And then you explode it out into an orchestration after that. So, you know, they're like, well, from your piano sketch, how do you make, how do you do make all these decisions? And I go, when I'm writing the piano sketch, I already hear the song in my head or the, the, the orchestration or whatever I'm creating in my head. And I don't stop until I get to that moment where I can fulfill that, that, uh, that outline. Right. So the, the point of all that is if you don't know what you're trying to create, then you're not really creating anything. You're just kind of fucking around, right? So yeah. you have to have the idea before you even, uh, you know, this is the, something I see people do all the time, especially with samples, samples today, is they're like gonna write a song and then for 
30 minutes, they're clicking through kick drum sounds or snare sounds. And you're just like, dude, you haven't even written a song yet. Like write the song and then the song will tell you what you want to express tonally. Right. So it's like everybody's doing it, in my opinion, at least backwards. It's like if you don't know what you're making, what are you, you know, you're just kind of like looking for a kick drum sound that has exists in a vacuum. Like it doesn't have any relationship to anything else that's happening in the song. Oh, do, you, do you feel like that's maybe an, you know, how you're saying, like, sometimes people are working backwards and they're wondering why do they get stuck and they're going in these circles? Do you think sometimes, like, artists or songwriters that are writing the song are not giving thought to the song? And, like, it's the same concept. They're just, they're not thinking about it clearly. They're kind of going in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, I think people are obsessed with production and they're not obsessed with songwriting. And songwriting will trump the production every time. I mean can always argue like this song doesn't mean anything but the production is great and it's like yeah exactly like it might grab you and you might listen to it and you it's interesting to hear but the longevity of it won't last right so it's like you can sing star wars right now right and it's great <laughs> you don't have to have <laughs> the orchestra there right the melody is just so good it, it it expresses a feeling and then everything else is supportive, right? All the orchestra, the entire 60 people that were playing that is only supporting the actual few notes, whatever that is, eight notes, seven notes of that melody line. And that melody line is so powerful that all the other people complement it. And that's why it becomes great. Just like, you know, like Queen or, you know, it doesn't even have to be Queen, like, are these it doesn't even have to be these complex harmonic harmonically complex things it can be green day you know what i mean it can be mm-hmm. something as long as the melody is sincere the the that you believe the the singer right and everything else is support and that's it it's like you got to have that root thing at least in my opinion you got to have that one thing first and then everything else will come quite easily i, I i'd imagine because you're actually feeling something at that point Right. And then now all you have to do is express your emotion in uh, a tonal palette of color. Now, as a producer, from what you're describing, do you feel like when a band, when they say, hey, I've got these songs and they're great and they're awesome. Do you feel like sometimes <laughs> I like to think you have almost like a bullshit detector when it's just like this doesn't feel authentic? How do you, yeah. can, you know, kind of say to them in the nicest way, like, hey, this is good, but I think we can delve a little bit deeper, a little bit better you know we can find some right. better songs everybody has it's their own um metric or or pendulum of uh what they can accept as good or bad right so i can't tell an 18 year old artist that uh or 20 year old artist right that is at the beginnings of their career that I don't think their song is good enough where they might believe like it's the best song they've ever written. Right. So on that side of it, I can't tell somebody if their song sucks or not. What I can do is take what they're giving me and then nudge it and go, Oh, maybe, maybe we phrase this a little differently like this, or maybe this chord sequence might be a little bit, I don't want to say better because it's not better. It's all subjective. Music is subjective. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty about it not better. Uh, here's an alternate way to think about this. And then, or if the song has, you know, this song 
you listen to it and everybody feels the same way. It has these certain challenges. How do we overcome those challenges? You know, you present options, right? Like when I was younger and, you know, everybody has ego, right? That's what drives somebody. When I was younger, I wouldn't deal with any of that shit. I would be like, all right, you got to change this. You got to change this and you got to change this because everything else is just bullshit. And uh, we're going to do it. And if you're not going to play it right, then I'm going to play it right. And I'll call you when it's done to come sing it. Right. That's the way I used to be. Uh, yeah. Now I'm an old man or becoming an old man where I, I'm more in a nurturing side of, of, of my personality. So I present options, but they have to live their choice. Right. And their choice might be stick with their guns and don't listen to me. And they might be right. Or their choice might be listen to me. And, you know, that's right. Whatever it is, it is. But I'm more I more try to present options uh, instead of telling them what I firmly believe is wrong, right or wrong, because it's all subjective. It doesn't doesn't matter. It's it's whoever whoever the uh, eye is sitting in. That's where the you know, they'll see the beauty in it or not. Like as you were growing as a producer, a mixer, did you have someone who was kind of like that mentoring you on that side of just being like, hey, here are the other options that kind of like shifted your perspective from the guy being like, hey, it's got to be this. If not, get out. I'm going to do it to eventually being like, oh, and then that started unlocking better things in your recordings in the mixing. So, again, the term better, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's always subjective. There's no okay. such thing as better or worse. But. So I worked with a band called Ludo, who are crazy talented. So we did demos or an EP that got them signed to uh, Island Def Jam. Mm -hmm. And then when it came time to make the record, I hadn't had any large successes at that point. So I was like 26 or 27. And that's when I was in my very much give me the guitar phase, you know, I'll, I'll call you when it's done phase. And Matt Wallace got to do the the record. So Matt called Island Def Jam and there was some songs that we had already done. He was like, I don't need to redo these. These are great. So that's how Matt Wallace and I became uh, buddies. So I eventually moved out to Los Angeles and my I put my studio right next to Matt and he mentored me for, you know, those few years that I was out there. And it was it was it was more of like how he approaches things is much more in the nurturing and lets the band figure things out. Uh, at least that's what I observed. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of me, you know, and me being, I'm going to figure this out for you and this is how you're going to do it. Now, he, you know, I would observe him in those situations and that's sort of where I, I saw a different perspective. And now it's very much, I can appreciate that side of it, but I can also appreciate the side that I, I have a natural instinct to, to be. And really it's up to the band, however they want to do it. Cause I always have the same talk with the band when we get there. I was like, this is your record. It's not mine. Right. So like, we're going to make whatever you guys want and I'm here to give you my opinion. And if you want to take it great, if you don't no hard feelings, like there's, this is an egoless atmosphere. Nobody in the band should not have, you know, should, the drummer should be able to write melodies if they're great, you know, and they inspire people. Mm -hmm. The guitarist should be able to write drum parts if they inspire people. Like, there's no ego. Nobody's better or worse than anybody else. We're just here to all make something really great and be creative together. So let's do that in a really fun and encouraging environment. So that I had Brett Gerwitz that managed me for uh, about a year and a half when I was living in Los Angeles. And he mentored me in a different way, right? Is like, 
he's he's such a smart dude and, and you know he's been in the business forever and he he knows how to talk to people and, and and be again it's more of a nurturing encouraging thing but that's that's the luck i had right i got to see older guys that probably went through kind of like what i went through and see how they do things so i feel very fortunate and lucky to be able to see that perspective and your studio was in sound city right yeah so so matt wallace um yeah matt was had a sound city studio and i uh when i moved to los angeles he was like yeah man put your studio right next to mine there's an open spot there so if people don't know like sound city if they've seen the movie there's like the main room where everybody talk talks about like um you know nirvana and everybody records but that is sound city is literally like a complex of small studios and where the main studio was was there's like this little parking lot uh, my studio was directly across the parking lot. So whenever you go do drums or bigger sessions, you just walk across the parking lot and go record in the A room and then bring your hard drive back to your studio and then finish it out, you know, overdubs and all the little stuff there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Sound City's great, man. It's, it's a really, really cool spot. I mean, that is so cool. Now, in the records that you made, what's your process when you're thinking about guitar tone? I know it can vary from record to record, but do you have mm-hmm. like things that you think about when you're like, okay, we're we're getting ready to track guitars. What constitutes for you like, you know, ah, this is going to make uh, a quality guitar tone? So I think for me, and again, right, like you said, it depends on the genre, right? If it's yeah. like some quiet thing, you know, you got to get the right atmosphere. If it's like a vibey kind of reverby guitar, you got to find that kind of right area. Um, if it's like a rock and roll or punk thing, it's for me, it's all about clarity. So it's like, if I can hear every, the pick hit every string, like that, that's like a benchmark for me to be like, okay, we got a good sound because I'm not a great guitar player, right? Like I can't shred, but I can play the shit out of some power chords. And, um, and I mean that in a very like specific way, like I'll have to, sometimes I'll, I'll, ask the guitar players to hand me the guitar to play them how I would play it because mm-hmm. a lot of people play messy and I, and I mean messy, not as in like actually lazy is the word I usually use. They play lazy where if they're playing, they're picking up their hand before they're moving to the next chord and there's a gap in the music, right? It might be very minuscule, but that gap says to me, Oh, I don't believe what I'm doing because it's like not worth the effort to like put in the put in the extra thing to move quicker to get to the core to keep the energy going. And like they don't play hard. So it's like they use gain to to like go like more distortion to disguise their lack of belief in the riff they're playing. So I like lower gain because the harder you play, the more gain comes out, which in turn sound has a brighter sound right like mm-hmm. a kick drum right you barely tap the kick drum there's more bass in it but if you kick it hard it's a brighter attack which over time people learn that you could have the same sound at the same volume right you could have a kick drum that's barely hit at the same spl level same decibel level as a kick drum that's hit really really hard and what are you going to do you're going to perceive the one that's hit harder as louder Right. Just because you've learned over the course of your life, the harder something's hit, the brighter it becomes. Pianos, everything, everything is like that. Right. If you dig into a string instrument more, 
it, it gets this brilliance to it. If you play more delicately, it's a softer sound, right? So if you can't bring that texture out in your playing, then how am I as a listener gonna believe that, yeah, this is really heavy and really hard. So it's all, it's a game of subtleties, man. It's like finding the details in, in everything and then relating that to how that makes you feel. And that's what music production is. That's, that's why I said earlier, it's like, if, you do, if you're writing all these kick drums or messing with kick drum and snare sounds, you haven't written the song yet, you don't even know what texture you're trying to create to make someone feel a certain way. It just blows my mind that people do that. I, I, again, like everybody's different. Some people need to have that to write the lyrics to. I, I, need, I need me and a piano or me and an acoustic guitar to get the, the feeling down to know what I want to produce. I couldn't agree more, especially with the kind of sometimes people oversaturate with the distortion, like so much mm -hmm. that it's hard to see what's happening. And that when you really dial back, like when I have students or clients that are talking about like, well, how do I improve this? It's like when you remove the gain, if you can get it to sound kick ass, like really mm -hmm. like low distortion, clean, any extra that you're going to add, it's going to sound more badass. And when it comes to the idea of, you know, especially like those subtleties, you said, like the transitions are not clean. The idea of like the metronome, getting comfortable with the metronome to the point where you're mm -hmm. aware of it, but you're not paranoid by it. Yeah, and I think sometimes absolutely. people are so paranoid by the metronome because they're like, I. it's almost like a robotic feel and the things that you're talking about, like the human feel, like the, the, the ebb and flow. Yeah. And just like that it has like that authenticity and not like I'm playing to the metronome for the first time. Here we mm -hmm. go. It just has just just getting rid of that. Yeah. I mean, there's a place to have a click and you're allowed to be free on it. Right. Like if it's a chill song, it's kind of nice to actually it's called, you know, backphrasing, like where you backphrase everything mm -hmm. and you just have it fall way behind the beat. It just feels nicer. It's very uh, chill. So what would be a tip for you if, if there's someone that's like, I want to get into the idea of recording myself? Uh, what are some, I guess, common mistakes some people do when they're starting to do their demos? Uh, producing it before it's written. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that's probably the most <laughs> common thing I see. Uh, you know, love your idea before you get in, into the production. I can't, like, emphasize that enough, like, really, like, you got to have the idea before you go and don't just go, okay, cool. I got a chorus. Now, now let's produce a song. Well, you don't have the song yet. So finish the song before you get into the next thing. So really you're emphasizing you, you have to have that structure, that skeleton structure where if they're sitting with you and you're like, cool, how's your song go? They can describe it and play it for you. So you're like, oh, cool. And not just like, well, the verse is still in that. It's like, yeah. well, then it's not done yet. <laughs> Well, yeah, that I, I've literally said this a million times, you know, to bands is like, it sounds like we're probably not ready to record yet. So, you know, finish the songs and then let me know when, when those are done and then we can start the actual recording. Because, you know, there's nothing to record yet. Like, what am I, <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to record. <laughs> like some chords with a rhythm and some na-na's, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a, it's not a song to me. I, I think I heard you uh, explain, it was maybe in a podcast or something, another one, or when I was in an interview and you were talking about, you know, some bands go into the studio and record the same song many different ways. And then that's very different from making an album. Could you explain that a little bit more? Oh yeah. So 
I think I, if I know what you're talking about, because I, I know exactly what I would have said, is uh, so <laughs> you have these, you have a band, right? Like Blink-182 would be a, a pretty good example, or Fallout Boy is another really good example, where they have their sound, right? And their sound is limited to, do you, do you, know, you know the number system? Mm-hmm. Right. And chords. Right. So like a one, yeah. five, six, four. So like if how much, you know, you can do a one, five, six, four and your whole record is, is essentially that one, five, six, four, right. For 10, 10 different ways on the same idea. It's like, doesn't feel like a, like a record to me or like a band exploring their creative avenues. It feels like, Oh, I really like this one thing. and I can't get away from it. So instead of exploring like a different idea or different, harmony and different whatever right they just write that one song 10 different ways and then they call that a record because it's the same emotion over and over and over again and do you feel like some bands think oh that's an album and you're like that's not an album that's just a collection of that's just you you record some songs there's there's nothing to it yeah well i'm not an elitist right i'm never going to (laughs) judge someone's art right because they love it, right? So there's merit to that. Like, it's absolutely great. You know, I'm speaking for me is like, I like, like Ludo, I'll use them as an example, because Ludo, I mean, the records that we've done, we've done songs that sound like they came from like 1920, where we got this instrument that I, uh, so we were recording their second album, and Andrew wrote this really cool song that just sounded like, you know, some crooner in a in a in the middle of kentucky singing about uh you know his girl or whatever from like 1920 or 1930 so Mm -hmm. there's this instrument called an octagon right and it's one of the first samplers ever created uh it was came around i think in like the 40s what it is is uh an optical disc that you slide into this instrument that it has buttons for the chords, and then I think it's only one octave that you can play on top of it, like a melodic line. And those optical records or optical uh, plastic, do you, do you know what I'm even talking about? Probably not. Yeah. Oh, you I, do? I okay. do. I've seen one of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they would <laughs> warp, right? So they would get these like warble effects in it. So we were at the studio, and I, I the studio that was like known for its keyboard collection, I was like, you guys don't have an optical. They're like, yeah, and and we use that, but yeah, but so we had a song like that, and then there was like a song like we did like a straight up acoustic country sounding song, and then the next song was like this crazy kind of like swung song called "Too Tired to Wink" is like this crazy kind of swung Green Day meets Queen, you know? It was just that's the kind of records I like to make because it's like, oh, we're making music, we're not making this one kind of thing over and over again. Like, like, think about Queen, yeah. right? Like, yeah, Queen made records. They didn't make like, like, you're my best friend. My best friend sounds nothing like you want to write or I want to ride my bicycle, right? But it's clearly the same band. You know, they don't sound like the same song. The the harmony's different. The chord structure is different. The ideas are different. And that's why these bands, like all these bands that have been around, you know, forever, are classics, is because they gave enough to the world to like keep them relevant and not even relevant it's not even relevancy it's keep them keep their uh you know if you only paint with within like red right if you use all the kind of warm colors that's the only thing people can get from you 
But if you can combine all the colors, right, now you're getting like a big picture where maybe one day you are feeling red, the next day you're feeling blue, and the next day you're feeling orange. If you don't paint with all those colors, there's no reason to go back to you when you're feeling that other way. I don't know how else to say it. Now, to me, this is a perfect segue. Would you say this is the thing that got you interested in composing? Like, you know, because you are also part of, um, you worked at uh, Screen Sound Alliance when it yeah, came so, to composition. Is that just like that experimentation, that idea of like different ways of expressing and different modes and different different avenues got you into that? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like you can only make so many punk records before you're like, all right, I've made punk records. You know, I can remember, it's probably seven years ago now, I, I was... Uh, still making records and doing everything. And I was like, man, I've always loved film composing. Uh, why aren't I doing that? And I was just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to start to learn. And I'm going to, you know, I went to school for music. I never graduated, but I, I knew enough to like understand the basic mm -hmm. ideas of how music works. Um, but then, you know, I got more, more into it and more, you know, just put my head down. I would do score studies. I would just sit there and read the scores. I bought, you know, like Star Wars, E.T., Back to the Future. And I would just read the scores and listen to the music over and over again, right? So you can, like, just follow the, the violas, the whole track. Just follow the first violin. Just follow the second violin. Just follow the trombones. And you can listen and hear. And what you're doing, like, when you talk about orchestra, you talk about color, right? You can hear the mm -hmm. colors they're making. Um, by certain blends and how the harmony works and, and see things in that way. Um, so I started doing that and then uh, I, as, I, as I said, I'm very ambitious. So I kept looking around for um, ways to get into that industry. And uh, I went to the uh, Natural History Museum to go see the Dark Universe. And I really liked the score for it. Mm -hmm. So I looked up to see who scored it. And it was this guy named Robert Miller. And then uh, I looked him up and found out he lived in New York. So then I dug further and just happened to find his email. And um, emailed him and I was just like, hey, I'd love to just take you out to lunch. You know, I'm an aspiring film composer. Um, I'd love to just pick your brain. So we went out to lunch. Uh, it was a good experience. An opportunity came up at his company, which was Screen Sound Alliance at the time. We're actually now called Random Order because um, we joined with a, uh, a bigger production company. But anyways. Um, so he hired me as a composer, and then that's when I really started to learn a lot from him. And he was he's been an amazing mentor. His his mentor, uh, when he was developing, was Aaron Copeland, which oh, is man. yeah, exactly. So he he, I mean Robert, I, he's unbelievable at what he does. I mean unbelievable. So you know he's been showing me um, more like sort of intimate tricks and. Things how to orchestrate and oh, why don't you try this? Or you know, he's kind of been really good on on that that side of things with me. Um, I feel very fortunate again to have a great you know great mentor and um, just pushing forward. So, but um, yeah, I mean the original back to the original thing is like yeah, absolutely. That's totally why I do what I why I got into film scoring is to exercise those things because. I love, I, I don't love punk, I don't love pop, I love music, I love all of it. So I want to make all of it, and that's the best way to do it. And scoring allows you. Yeah, I was going to say, I just find that interesting because I find the ones that go 
that are constantly growing and doing those things chase after the things that just intrigue them. That just oh, yeah. and they just kind of just and it's not like a well maybe I'll do this well maybe I'll just try it, I'll dabble it they just fucking throw themselves into it you and have they're to. like here we go and, but it to me that's so interesting because I think some people are told in art sometimes like oh you know have a plan A have a plan B here's your plan C but mm -hmm. how you've described what you've done you've just delved in fully you've immersed yourself in it. And yeah. just like, here we go. Let's figure it out. Let's do it. Yeah. And again, like going back, like it's, it wasn't a choice. I didn't decide to do this. It's just what I did. If that, I, I don't know how to say it. It's like, I didn't choose music. It's just what I do. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, Would you say it's, it's the thing a, that just intrigues you? And then you just chase after that, that thought and that, yeah, that exactly. process. Like, Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's like, you never, you didn't start out your interview by saying like, I wanted to make a million dollars, Mike, and I wanted to uh, do it, but it was yeah. just like, this is the thing that intrigues me. And I find it fascinating. And, you know, I get that when you said, you know, you say whatever money you got, I remember just not, you know, you know, using my lunch money in high school because I was like, I'm just going to buy a CD. I'm going to yeah. go to a show. And it was exactly. just the thing that I, and I just accumulated. And it was like, cause music fascinates me. You yep. know, in all different genres. And it's just, it's always, it's awesome to hear someone else. And I find the people that I've been talking to that say the same thing. I just delved in and did the thing. Like, if you're yep. asking me, did I say, like, I'm going to be this and write a word of affirmation? Like, I'm going to be a multi-built. No, it was just, I chased after what intrigued me. And yep. I still chase, chase after what intrigues me. Yeah, exactly. You don't, don't get bored and don't let yourself become complacent because... Once you start to get that way, right, you probably shouldn't yeah. be doing that anymore because it's not your passion. Mm. What projects are you working on now that you're you're like super excited for? The couple of Kia commercials, another commercial called Optum, a uh, a band called Marina City from Chicago, a band called Lost Like Lions from San Francisco, a band called That's Modern cool. Ties from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I don't know think that's it right now a lot <laughs> a lot it, it sounds yeah. like yeah <laughs> i'm very are you also I, I, I are you well. also a person that just like likes to immerse themselves in work too just like cool let's do it yeah because it's not work for me you know what i mean it's it's <laughs> like i get to wake up every morning and i get to make music and people pay me for that <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> it's i don't know how much better of a life i could ask for honestly Oh, and I live in the best city in the world, New York. So come on. Oh, that is fantastic. I love it. Mark, this was awesome. Thanks for taking out the time. Um, yeah, thank you, Mike. I love it. I love this and hope to have you back sometime. I love Mark. The first time I met him, he was running sound uh, at a punchline taping. And I went up to him and I was like, Hi, I gave you my audio stems for something I I produced. What'd you think of them? And he was like, oh, yeah, it was great. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say anything. You were fine. And I was like, wow, he was he's very upfront. He doesn't he's very approachable. And to me, that's why I always love talking with him, because he genuinely enjoys what he does. And his goal is to empower others to to let them know that, hey, if you want to do it, guess what? Go do it. And you know what? You can do it. 
You're a songwriter. You have your guitar, you're writing songs, but sometimes you're stuck in this box. This box of the same thing, which then produces the same song over and over, and it feels like a never-ending trap. Don't worry, you are not alone. And that's why I created the Songwriting for Guitar Insiders. Every month you're going to get a new skill building module. Every month we're going to meet as a group. So start writing the songs you know you're capable of. Just go to songwritingforguitar.com and click the Insiders group. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. This episode was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Byers. Until next time.